it's obvious that summer has hit. We have summer days, and, you know, often summer days remind people of days gone by when life seemed to be just a little bit more simpler, when a day consisted of spending time hiking or fishing or watching a Little League baseball game or taking time to enjoy a cold glass of iced tea as the cool breeze of the evening ushers in the, the spectacular sunset. But there's a time and point in life when the carefree days of being a child or a youth disappear. They're like the setting sun. They go down and they seem to never come back. Life seems to be complicated and complex. We find ourselves worrying, having about like having a good job or a business that will provide for our needs and make sure that our family has what they need to be happy. We worry about getting a house a good, reliable vehicle, finding the right medical and dental coverage so we're not paying too much but yet have enough coverage to handle an emergency. At some point, we start worrying about saving enough money for retirement. And then after we're retired, we want to make sure that the money we save lasts till we die. Then we have to worry about our aging parents, how to help them out, take care of them in the busyness of our lives. And then the grandkids come, and you start worrying all over again. And somewhere in those times of worry, we start to reminisce. We start to think back to our youth or our childhood when when we didn't worry or have a care in the world about anything because life basically consisted of going outside in the summer, playing all day long, making sure we had food or a snack, and then when it was bedtime, we'd want to go and camp out under the stars and just look at the stars until we fell asleep at night. There was nothing about life that kind of ran us over. But the interesting thing about when we reminisce about those days, we don't want to go back to the physical size of a child. We don't want to go back to that that whole part of, of developing intellectually. We don't want to have to go and deal with the uh, emotional roller coaster of being a teenager again. What we want is just the, the carefree and simple life of a child. I want to remind you that what is true physically is also true in the spiritual world. If you were to bump into a 34-year-old man that looked like he was 14 and acted like he was a junior high boy, you would be concerned about him. You'd go like, there's something desperately wrong with this guy. But, you know, if we we bump into uh, a, a, a person who is spiritually underdeveloped and immature, we act as if nothing's wrong, as if that's the way Christ followers are to act and to be. There's growing pains involved in becoming a mature Christ follower. And that's what Paul's talking about in his first letter to the Corinthian church. He's addressing this very issue. Today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to start with the first three verses, and we'll be kind of back and forth in that. It says... But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as, pe- but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In our modern society's narrative... 
It's a narrative of one of progress, development, achievement, boundary pushing, and technical evolution. We want the newest, the fastest, the sharpest, the cleanest, the hottest, the, the flaunted, the praised, and the must-have commodities. Those things show others that we're still pushing forward, that we're still making progress, that we haven't given up on becoming the person that we thought we wanted to become when we were younger, that we would have all the neat gadgets and all the neat stuff to prove that we've gotten somewhere. We have an inherent need to prove that we will amount to something as we grow up or we grow older or we step into the older eras of our life. The jobs that that we have, that we've secured, and the education that we've earned somehow make us feel like we're continuing to grow as, as a human being and we want others to know about it. Now, the desire for growth and progress isn't all bad. Matter of fact, living things are supposed to grow. Babies are supposed to grow up and get better. Crops at this time of the year are supposed to come out of the ground, grow, so that they have a harvest. And God created all these things to grow. He designed them to flourish. He designed us to flourish. He designed us to grow in every front, physically, mentally, spiritually, interpersonally, and culturally. God wants us to grow. And the Bible actually says there's something beautiful about things that are growing. We really, we really admire all the things that are growing, and we think it's wonderful. I have to tell you about, you know, when we first bought our place where we're at, we, we built a house and we started planting trees. We picked up a tree, and I think it's called a, a mountain ash. That thing still has no buds on it. And every year at this time of the year, my wife says, I think that tree's dead. But by the end of the June, the thing will have all of its leaves out. And then by the end of September, or even like the middle of September, they will have all dropped off. That thing's time of producing leaves is very short. It's the ugliest tree we have on the whole place. And secretly, because Lorinda's not here, and I know she won't go online and listen to this, I hope it is dead. It's ugly. There's nothing beautiful about it. I want to rip it out and throw it on the burn pile and put something in there that has beautiful blossoms and has trees for a long time. And that's what God has for us. He, he designed us as human beings to, to thrive, to live. You know, in the original design, we weren't designed to decay or die. We were designed to live forever. That's the way God designed us. But because of the sin and the fall of man, now we have to deal with death and decay and we're dying. I don't know at what, what point in our lives, because there's a point where we're, we grow and then we kind of level off and then we start to decline a little bit. And, and once you hit that back slope, you're going like, it's not too long now till I'm going to glory. You know, but that wasn't God's original d- design for us. He, the problem is when we desire growth in all the areas of our life except in our relationship with God, we've got a problem. It's a huge problem. And not only that, but we have this strong desire for other things other than God, and those things derail 
the relationship that we started with God. We let these things seep into our lives. All these, they're not bad, they're not horrible, but what they have a tendency to do is to derail our growth in God. And that's what Paul says in these first few verses of chapter 3. I'm going to go back to verses 1 and 2. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Now, I think when, when the Corinthians got this letter from Paul, I think they were expecting Paul to go like, you guys have been doing great. You're awesome. You're really growing in Jesus. I mean, you are, you are mature Christians and you're just doing great. But what Paul says to them right here is he's going like, have you lost your minds? You're not spiritually mature. You're still sitting in your diaper in a high chair waiting for somebody to come along and give you a bottle. You're still drinking milk and you should be on solid food. And they're going like, how come is he saying this to us? Here's the, here's the, the thing that really kind of probably frosted Paul's cookies, if I can say it that way, is that he planted this church four years prior to him writing this letter. And when he left them, he left them on a trajectory to where they would be growing, where God was growing them in their faith. And what happens is is he gets the report back that now things have regressed in in their growth in God, in their understanding of spiritual things. And he's like, you gotta be kidding me, right? You guys are still acting like infants. You're still acting like all you can do is drink milk. You can't get into the solid food. You can't get into the meaty things of God. And you know, that, that, that indictment that Paul brought to the Corinthians church is true in a lot of churches today. There are a lot of people that stepped into faith and they went like, I believe in Jesus for, for dying on the cross for my sins. I believe that, that, that he loves me. And a year later, they're saying, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that Jesus loved me. And they they never get any traction. They never go anywhere. And they're still back at that infant stage of of not developing and growing. And and Paul's indictment must have been shocking, but it was accurate. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. Here's what he says. And even now you are not ready for you... You are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And, and when it says that word human here, what it means in, in carnal. In other words, we're not speak, we're not thinking and developing spiritually. We're just, we're just caught on this whole thing of just this, this human thought pattern and not bringing the spiritual side to the aspect of our whole life. And, and so Paul started this church and he had to write this letter because he's getting these reports of regression on their spiritual maturity. The church is still behaving like little kids that are not ready for deeper things, deeper truths of God. They still need to be reminded of the basic things of Christ, things like this. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to hell. 
The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that the church is holy because she is the bride of Christ. We believe in communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. That's the basics of being a disciple of Christ. It's the simple truth that we should all know about that we'd be able to articulate to those who are wondering what we really believe. These are the basic truths. And we should all know them. We should all have them in our heart. We should be able to say them in a heart, in a, in what I call a, a, an elevator speech. That's when you get on an elevator and someone comes in and, and they recognize you and they maybe know that you're a Christian and you're going to the third floor and you hit the button three and when the doors close, by the time they open on the third floor, you're able to articulate why you believe in Jesus and why he is your savior. We all need to know those things. That's basic for us to know. And, and we've developed the same issue that the Corinthian church had, namely immaturity in our faith and how to live in grace, in the grace of Jesus with each other. We have a small dab of faith. We have this small inkling of what faith looks like in Jesus. And we don't apply it to our lives. We just keep on going and living as as though You know, Jesus is over here and here's the rest of my life and that doesn't interfere with my life until on Sunday when I have to go to church and be there for an hour and a half or two hours. Heaven forbid. Because that's just going to really mess things up. And and not only that, but we don't know how to express the grace of Jesus to one another. All we do is find fault with each other. We find an area where we can nitpick on somebody's life and say they're not growing, they're not doing, they're not being according to maybe what you think, maybe not even what Scripture has to say. And that is not the grace of Christ. I mean, if you just think about what Jesus did with the people that he met, like the woman at the well who had had five husbands and was living with the sixth man, in no way did Jesus ever come and beat her up He understood what her need was. He understood how to speak to her in terms where she received it. And at the end of the whole thing, she went back to her town and she said, I have met the Messiah. He has told me everything about my life. You need to come and see him. And the whole community went out. And Jesus spent another three days there preaching to them and showing them the grace of God. That's what we're supposed to be like in this community of faith. The problem is, is that when we have these immature people in our faith, they're constantly moving away from the fundamental teachings of Jesus. Paul was following the mission of Jesus, which is to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them to obey all things that Jesus taught. The problem is that these groups of disciples were unwilling to obey the words of Jesus. We know this by the next thing that Paul points out to the church, which is the indicator of spiritual immaturity or lack of development. It's part of verses 3 and 4. It says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Paul's saying here that jealousy and strife is one of the assessments by which a person's spiritual development can be measured. Now, you might be sitting here now going like, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this today. Because I think they're jealous and I think they're full of strife. Well, the message I'm afraid to tell you is for you, not for the other person. 
People get jealous over the craziest things. They get jealous when God shows a blessing in somebody else's life. He, he provides this provision and blessing to other people. And people get jealous of that. People are jealous over who you might know or who you hang out with. They're jealous about the ministry that others are involved in. They're jealous about the gifts, the skills, and abilities that others have been given by God for the, for the church. In short, they are acting like immature junior high kids, and eventually they pout because the church focus isn't on them. This jealousy then is turned against others in the form of gossip, slander, and things are said about other people that aren't true and eventually causes strife, dissension, and rivalry. And that all leads to divisions in the church, and that's what Paul's addressing here in the Corinthians church. They had divisions. Because all this stuff, all this immature stuff that he's talking about, and much of this is due to the issues of trying to achieve spiritual growth by latching onto some teacher or preacher who is well-known, and people are trying to find their identity through those people or those movements. It happens in the area of, of worship in churches. One group of people are going to say, like, well, we only want to sing the songs and do the style of worship like Hillsong. And the others on the other side are going like, oh, no, no, Hillsong's old school, and they don't really get into the spirit like Bethel does. And so we're a Bethel group of worship. And so you have these two different groups within the churches that are going like fighting over which style or which songs are better to sing. And they don't know that it's all about the heart attitude. But it's not just in worship that we have that problem going on. It's not just confined to, to those things. It also happens with people who attach themselves to a famous teacher or preacher and they hang on every word, every thought, and every concept that's brought forth by that guy. Look at verses 5 and 7. Paul says, what is Apollos and what is Paul? Let me just stop there. Apollos and Paul, they're good friends. They have different kinds of ministry. But they love each other like brothers in Christ. So it says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Here Paul is depersonalizing both Apollos and himself when he says, what is instead of who? He is asking them the obvious question. What? Are we supposed to make you grow? That's the question he's asking. And then he, I may have made up a word here, so hang on with me. He depedalizes, pedestalizes. You have that? Knocks him off the pedestal. Both him and, and, and Apollos as well, because he says, we're just servants. Servants don't stand on a pedestal. They're on their knees with a basin of water washing feet. And he goes on and points to the source of their ministry. It was an assignment from the Lord. I mean, like, how can, how can, it's just this crazy thought pattern that's going on that I'm going to attach myself to Apollos because he's flamboyant and he's articulate and he really preaches the word and he makes me feel good and I really understand him and I really connect with him. So Apollos makes me grow. And then the others are going, no, no, Paul. Paul's the one that started this church and he is deep-rooted and he's intellectual and he really understands the mind of the people around us. So I'm sticking with Paul. And what Paul's saying is like, 
You have lost your minds if you're attaching yourself to any human being because we're only servants. What Paul is saying is true growth is always God-given growth. It doesn't come from a man. It doesn't come from, from anybody of, of who we think is important. Now, don't get me wrong. Ministry is important because you have those who plant and those who are watering. But as Paul says, only God is the one that brings spiritual growth. For the Corinthians and for us, we have to focus on the one who gives the growth. The problem for many is that they're seeking a specifically specific delivery method. And the result is that those who are more concerned about the delivery miss out on the message. And the message is given by God and the message is God. And so when you miss out on that message, you're drinking from a bottle and drinking milk. Now let me ask, let me just talk about this idea of delivery. If you're dehydrated, you've been out in the sun all day long and, and you know you're starting to get a headache, you're, you're, you're spitting sand, it, your mouth is so dry and you just, you just want to drink. Do you really care what the water is served in? I mean, okay, so I've got my sister-in-law from Canada, A eh? Coming, eh? Hoser. And the first time they came to visit our house, we're on well water. They're in the city where it's like 97% chlorine and 3% water. And so that's what she's used to drinking. But then they buy the bottled water, right? And so she came up to our house, and um, she says, I'm really thirsty. Can I get a could, – could I have some water? I go, yeah, I'll get you some ice. Got her some ice. Opened the tap up, gave her some water. Now, our water's a little bit soft. It might be a little bit salty. But she took a dr- one drink of it, and she went like, Doug, you got to go into town and get me some bottled water. And I'm like, oh, my. You know, if you're really thirsty, you don't care whether it's bottled water. You don't care whether it's running in a stream beside you. You are thirsty if you need it because you know why? Because if you're really in that desperate place of thirst, you know that that water is life-giving. It's life-giving. And so we get caught up on the messenger. And anyone who is a minister... And ministering in any way is a messenger, and that means you are a servant. The message is God. And when we receive the message of God, it's like water to our soul. We grow. We're spiritually healthy. We have, a, we have life and vitality. Instead of just getting by, we're flourishing spiritually. Now, because God gives the growth, we don't need to strive to produce growth on our own. If we know and believe that our growth is not something we produce, then we can give up on all of our self-help and our self-improvement and self-actualization projects. Growth is not going to come by reading the right books or listening to the right preacher or following the proper schedule of spiritual disciplines. These things are not unimportant. They are important. And God may very well use those things to grow you. But it's not where the growth comes from. It comes directly from God. That's what it says right here. Because God gives the growth, we're now able to put our differences in proper perspective. 
It means that there's no hierarchy in the church, not someone better than another. And, and though we're all different, no difference makes one qualitatively better than another. God affirms differences in the word. Some plant, some water, some till the soil, some reap the harvest. Every Christ follower is equipped with the gifts that are unique to his own, his or her own makeup. And each is uniquely and equally important to the body of Christ. That's why it says this in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. A gospel-shaped community is where there is unity in diversity. Because one plants and other waters does not make them unique parties with divided interests. There is a partnership in the process of growth. God is able to produce growth without us. I want you to get this. I want you to hear this. Because we really think we bring something to God. But understand this. God is able to produce growth without us. He doesn't need us. He isn't dependent upon us to do what he said he will do. However, he wants to partner with us in this area of growth. And because God wants us to participate with him, he will provide what we need. He will equip us with the tools required. And he will give us every gift that we as a community of faith will need to fulfill the assignment that he's laid on all of us together. He doesn't need us, but he wants us to join him. And I don't, I can't think of a better thing for us to, to join God in. It, it's, it's this faithful community following Jesus' words empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then God works in us and through us. That's why we're called the body of Christ, a group of individuals functioning as one body. In verses 8 and 9, we see that Paul's making the case for our, our, our call to be co-workers with God. We're called to be co-laborers, to work with God in this whole thing. In verses 8 and 9, he says, He who plants and he whose waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16? Okay, I'll help you out. I didn't think you'd remember. I was just kind of throwing a little curveball at you there, just a little bit. In Matthew 16, Jesus is talking with Peter, and specifically with Peter, but the rest of the disciples are there. And what Jesus said to Peter is, is that he was going to build his church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I'm guaranteeing the success of the church. The church is the ecclesia or the gathering of a group of people with a specific purpose. And the specific purpose that we have, Jesus declared to us in Matthew 28, to go make disciples, and then once you've made these disciples, to baptize these disciples, and then once they're baptized, to teach them to obey all things that Jesus taught. And this progression of of making, baptizing, and teaching is significant when Jesus said it that way. He says there's something really important about the way we do it. We get messed up on it. Personally, I've done it. I know hundreds of churches that do it. What they do is they get someone who comes to Christ, and then they get them into a discipleship program over here, and they start teaching them and discipling them, and they've skipped the baptismal part. 
And Jesus laid it out that way for a very specific reason. Is that that we're, we're claiming to be a disciple of Jesus. Now stand up and make that known to a lot of people. It's by the confession of your mouth and the belief in your heart that you're saved. And it's that confession when you stand up in front of a group of people and say, I'm following Jesus for the rest of my life. And with God's help and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to try and obey everything that Jesus taught me. And when I fail, I know he's going to forgive me and his grace is sufficient for all my needs. That's what we're supposed to do. But what happens is there's a huge, huge thing going on in our country. To make a disciple is entirely different than making of a Christian. Especially in our, in, our, in our country. A disciple is the person who is totally sold out for Jesus. There's nothing that would ever take Jesus' place in their life. They have made a public confession of their faith in Jesus and desire to grow in that relationship. A Christian is a religious person who may or may not be sold out for Jesus. And the big difference between a Christ-following disciple and a Christian is that the Christian is fulfilling a set of rules and regulations that they believe are going to make them good enough and to be accepted by God. And those rules and regulations, a lot of them aren't even found in scriptures. It's just something that's been tradition, hand down. From generation to generation to generation. And that's what we have as people calling themselves Christians. Because part of the rule or the regulation is to show up to church on Sunday, check the box that I was there, maybe check the box that I gave something in the offering, and check the box that I was nice to the pastor. I've done my duty for the week. But being a Christ-following disciple knows this, that we bring nothing to God that is of value to him that he is going to go like, wow, I'm really glad you're on my team. We have nothing. We understand that. And what they know is that it's all in the work and the person of Jesus Christ that makes them presentable and fully righteous in God's sight. It's nothing about us and it's all about Jesus. That's what a... a Christ-following disciple knows. And when they understand that, and they understand that relationship, and they're in that relationship with God, you know what God confers on us? You are now my son. You are now my daughter. You are a part of my family. I'm not going to treat you like, like a stepchild. You are adopted. You have full rights, full heir. You are a brother, sister to Jesus. And everything Jesus has, you have. We're part of the family. We're in the family business now. Did you know that? You're in the family business. You know what the family business is? Make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them to obey all things. That's what we're called to do. That's the command by Jesus. That we as a group of people, an ecclesia, one purpose. What's the purpose? Make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. Repeat. Really what we want to become is a disciple-making uh, disciples who are making disciples in a church as an ecclesia, as a gathering of people. That's really what we want to become. That's why, that, that's what, what Paul's really getting at. But, you know, sometimes what happens is we come together, uh, together and sometimes we think to ourselves, I don't feel like I'm growing anymore. I feel a little stagnant. And then we look around at our, at our church body and we're going like, 
man, there just aren't very many people coming to our church. It seems like we're, we're planting and watering, but it just seems like we're not getting any kind of a harvest here. So what's going on with that? Well, you know, Jesus kind of understood where we would be, and he understands the human heart, and he understands the human condition. And so he wants to help us. And so he, in John chapter 15, he gave some very specific instruction and insight for us as to what it means to be successful as he promised we would be successful. John chapter 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. You get it? You have to be connected to Jesus, the vine, in order to have any kind of success. And when we are, we're going to bear fruit. We're going to bear fruit not just individually, but as an ecclesia, a gathering of people. We will bear much fruit. And, and God will grow us, and he will receive all the glory for growing us. If we're not connected, we'll do nothing of eternal value. Apart from being connected to Jesus, you can do nothing. Not that notion of, you're telling me I can't do anything now because I'm not connected to Jesus. Well, I can still make money. I can still have a family. I can still make a name for myself. Oh, yeah, well, that's all good, but that has no eternal value. It has zero eternal value. Matter of fact, all the time, energy, and effort you're putting into making a name for yourself, establishing yourself, uh, building a bank account, uh, doing all the things that you're doing of monetary value, all that stuff one day, it's all going to burn up and disappear. It is going to be nothing. You are going to leave absolutely ashes on this planet. And so when God says and Jesus talks about having eternal value of us doing something, we have to be connected to Jesus in order to, for us to receive from him what we need in order to be fruitful, in order to make some kind of impact on eternity in somebody's life. There are only two things that are going to last through eternity. The word of God and the souls of men. And the souls of men will be eternal joy or eternal damnation. It's still eternal. And so what God's calling us to do, he's asking us to come and work with him in this whole process of making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them in this growth thing. He's the one that brings the growth, but he still wants us to participate with him by planting, by watering, by tilling the soil, by bringing the harvest in. But all the glory goes to God. That's why that's what it says in verse 9. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. What we do here on earth has eternal significance. It carries weight eternally. You're not to build your kingdom. You're to build the kingdom of God. The church, the body, the ecclesia. You know, some of you are still infants. I mean, some of you really are infants. You just came to Christ recently, maybe. And you're just starting to learn what it means to live in Christ. And, and you belong at that stage. There are some that are junior high-ish kind of people. And then we have the, the adults. And this is all spiritually speaking. But if, you, if, if you're still an infant and you're still eating on milk, God's got something better for you. If you're still acting like a child, if you're still, if you're still jealous 
and there's strife in your life, that's one of these indicators that Paul right here just said is an indicator of spiritual immaturity. You're still on milk. You're still on baby food. You're still eating kids' happy meals. And what God really wants is for us to grow up. That's what he's calling us to do. And Paul addresses that issue a little bit later in chapter 13, but I'm going to give it to you a little right now. Here's what Paul says in chapter 13. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man or an adult, I gave up childish ways. That's growing into maturity. That's what God's calling all of us to do. That's his desire for us. But the process of becoming a mature Christ follower oftentimes involves painful things in our lives. And we don't like pain. We want to avoid pain at all costs. And so when there's something painful in our life, we will do everything in our power to get away from that and go to a happy place and hang out with Winnie the Pooh. Have your happy thoughts. Or whoever it was. And, and, and what God's saying is, is until you go through that pain right there, whatever it is in your life, you're not going to be able to grow. And so instead of running away from it, embrace it because what happens on the other side of that is that we reap a harvest in our own lives. And that's what God wants. That's how we grow. That's, that's how God grows us. You've heard the saying, where there's no pain, there's no gain. It's true spiritually. So here's a question. Do you want God to grow you? Are you willing to go through whatever God will do in your life to grow you? That's the better question. If we're not careful about our desires to grow spiritually, we'll be looking at all kinds of other things to grow us in our relationship with God. We'll find a really good internet or TV preacher who delivers the word, and we find him to delivering the word deeply. But he's also very engaging and entertaining. And then we start to compare him to other preachers. And then we start a little fan club of this guy. And then all we want to do is, is to live, listen to this marvelous preaching. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't listen to other preachers or teachers. Matter of fact, I think it's healthy that we do those kinds of things because God will use those people to grow us. God will use those people to grow us. And, and, and he, when he helps grow us, the thing that he grows us in is, is connecting with him in understanding the depth of the gospel. But if we start to claim that it's because of this preacher or that preacher that we've grown deeper, we have just given God's glory to a man. The same thing's true of our reading. There are a lot of really great authors out there that produce a lot of books that will help in the process of growing. But if we're reading more of the spiritual development books than we are reading the Bible, we have just placed man's word over God's word. The word of God cannot uh, ever become supplemental reading. It has to be primary reading. And we use those other books to supplement what we're reading and being fed on daily. That's what it's calling us to do. 
we need to make God the supply of our spiritual nutrition and to join him as co-workers to accomplish the work before us for his glory and for our good. We need to start to invest in eternal treasures and put earthly treasures in their proper place. Because you know what? That's how God grows us. Amen? All right. In your handout this morning, if you grabbed one, a little bit from our discussion last week, you have the questions on a piece of paper, but I'm going to put them up here on the screen as well. So here are questions to consider. How would you describe your spiritual journey? Surviving or thriving? Why? How do you respond when God blesses someone you know? Jealousy or joy? And why? Is there some teacher preacher that you've attached yourself to for spiritual growth? How can you let this person help you in in your spiritual journey, but yet know that your loyalty to growth can only be in God? And finally, what ministry is God assigned to you to participate in so that others will grow and he will get the glory? You're in the family business. So what part of the family business are you doing?